if you have a question, if you'll just raise your hand and hold your question, I'll come to you, bring the microphone, and uh, we'll ask uh, a question to our panel and let them try and answer that for us. Who'd like to start things off? Who has a, a question, maybe something today was brought up or a question you are curious about, you'd like to ask our panel? Anyone, don't be shy. Okay, let's go. Everybody, no. <laughs> yes. Um, Barry had spoke about the authority of God's word, and the, of course, in that the deity of Christ. And then Mel had spoke about the Mormons and their believing um, that Jesus is a spirit brother. But in talking with a Mormon. Um, we came across, uh, the, he said to me that he believed that Jesus was God's son, but not um, God in flesh. So how would you respond to that? Um, and is there a danger in them believing that Jesus is God's son, but not God in the flesh? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that you have to realize when you're dealing with cults is that many times they use the same words and same phrases that we use, but they mean something completely different. Um, a retired missionary put it to me this way with dealing with the Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They do not believe He is God the Son. And there is a world of difference between those two phrases. Um, there are many religions that will call any of us sons of God simply because of the fact of creation or being created in His image. And in one sense, that's true. But it is a far cry being a son of God even on the level of um, the Jehovah's Witnesses who will say He is the Son of God but He falls this short of being God Himself. And the Mormons, the same way, uh, they believe, now some of them won't let them pin you down, but one, one person that deals with Morgans, Mormons told me if they won't let them pin you down on this, tell them, uh, Brigham Young said that Adam God came into the Garden of Eden with his many wives and produced spiritual children among which... Jesus was one of them, and so was Satan, Lucifer. They're spirit brothers, they're on this level, they're short of the level of God. And he said, you know, if you really want to pin them down, tell them your prophet Brigham Young said that. Now would you like to explain to your counsel why you don't believe what prophet Young said? <laughs> you know, But they, they, even when they say son of God, they are referring to a being who falls short of being completely God. That is not the teaching of the Bible and the teaching of the New Testament. The New Testament and throughout Scripture, if you compare Scripture with Scripture and the Christian definition of the Trinity, all three beings of the Trinity are completely God. We only believe in one God. There's one God essence, whatever that is. You know, I can't explain it, but there is one God essence of everything that is totally God. And there are three beings that totally possess that essence. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal, co-eternal, 
and none of them lack anything that makes them any less God than the other. So to say that some, that a being is the Son of God but makes them less than God is not talking about the Son of God in the Bible and is not talking about the Lord Jesus Christ being God the Son, co-eternal, co-equal, co-powerful with the Father. Anyone else want to add to that? Okay. Another question. Someone else have a question. Like I say, it may be something from the conference, one of the workshops, or, or just maybe something... Uh, that wasn't discussed today. Barry, I know we talked about this already, but could you tell me just a little bit more about the Codex Sinaiticus, just the history behind it, the, who was the driving force? Um, the history behind it, I'm a little, I'm a little uh, I need to study on that some more. But it's, it was discovered in a monastery near Mount Sinai. Um, and I can't remember... There, there's, a lot, there's a lot of those, either Sinaiticus or the, the Sinaiticus or the Vaticanus. Um, there was a Count Tischendorf, if I remember correctly, who was going around trying to um, find ancient documents and keep them and putting them in museums. And he actually found one of the codexes like that. The monks were burning them to keep warm in the fire. He literally pulled some of these precious documents out of the fire. But the the Sinaiticus is the oldest complete copy of the New Testament that we have. Up until that point, we have some fragments like the John Rylands fragment that we looked at today. Um, there are there are some other uh, pieces that may have several books of of the New Testament together in that. Um, like uh, like the Diatessaron, there's there's uh, and there's one the Muratorian fragment would be another example like that. It doesn't have Matthew and Mark, but it starts at Luke and goes through several of the epistles like that. So we have we have it's like pieces and chunks up until that time that we can refer back to. But that fourth century is where we find the Sinaiticus at and find that total complete copy of the New Testament at that time. Any other thoughts on that? Okay. Other questions? Barry, not a, not a question per se, but just to add to and let you do this, the more recent find of the Dead Sea Scrolls and how this verified so much of the Old Testament, in particular the mm-hmm. book of Isaiah. You, yeah. you might want to comment there, okay. sir. Okay, or you could do it, Brother Hodge. <laughs> I'm talking a lot, Mel and Pastor. Um, well, that, that's once again what we, ta- what we mentioned, how archaeology and especially in the line of manuscripts and prophecy uh, had, had and archaeology we find usually has to catch up to the Bible rather than the Bible catching up to archaeology. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest copies of the New Testament that we had only dated back to about 900 A.D., When they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, that pushed everything back to about 100 B.C. It pushed the date of of the Old Testament copies that we had back just about a thousand years. Um, And what that that has done for us, just just like we talked about in class today, um, some of you may have heard of the documentary hypothesis, the JEDP theory, 
Maybe you didn't. We only hinted at that today. But what that was was the efforts of higher criticism like, like we, we talked about to destroy prophecy. Because if you can destroy prophecy, you can destroy the supernatural aspect of the Bible. Prophecy can only come about by supernatural God and supernatural acts. And, by when, and why dating is so important like this, um, the, the general consensus of like the people who still hold to the documentary hypothesis, and that is losing favor fast because archaeology keeps showing them that they're wrong. But the earlier these dates go back, we, we see that we see that transmission line, and you go back and you look. You look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you look at and you see how that the the Masoretes and the Essenes took such care to preserve Scripture, and how and how that was stored, and how all and we can see back how the copies and how they match and everything like that. But what that does, it put it puts it back. Number one, it destroys theories like that that say that well Ezra wrote most of this stuff around 200 B.C. or so or something like that. And it only looks like prophecy. He wrote it like prophecy, but it's really written later to match the times. And when you can push dates like that back, they pushed back those copies before uh, into about the 1st or 2nd century B.C. Um, and And the book of Isaiah in particular... Uh, JEDP says there were two Isaiahs, there were two authors of that. One wrote chapters 1 through about 39 or 40, 42, and the other guy wrote the rest of the book. But you go to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you find scrolls that stretch from back in chapters 30, some, you know, 36, 38, going past chapter 42, 44, 48, in one continuous scroll. Like that, and it it you know they it shows that the Jews considered the book one whole book. It wasn't broken up into sections like that. Um, also, you know the the idea of when you find things like the Septuagint, the Greek copy of the Old Testament, um, they want to know well when when was the Old Testament completed? The Jews accepted around 400 450 BC. Um, that's when they think that Malachi was done and that was the seal of the prophets right there. So that puts it back even older still. Um, they had to have been done with it by around 250 B.C. because the Septuagint is a complete Greek copy of the Hebrew Old Scriptures. If the, Hebrew, if the Old Testament couldn't have been complete, you can't have a complete Greek copy of something that's not been finished yet. So the Old Testament has to be finished by 250 B.C. Once again, that's, that's pushing things further, further back. And we talked about today the um, discovery of the Silver Scrolls by Dr. Gabriel Barquet, which pushes numbers back even further, 700 B.C. at least. And that means there's an older original out there. So more and more archaeology shows us like that, that these men wrote around the dates that they claim to have written rather than what higher criticism has tried to destroy in the Bible. And, if, and, that, and that's the particular reason they want to attack that. If you can destroy Daniel writing in 537 about what Alexander the Great did in 332, you can undermine Scripture. But if you demonstrate that these prophets wrote at those times and made accurate predictions, and even so, 
even, even if we didn't have the prophets making the accurate descriptions of the world governments at that time, you have men who definitely had to have been finished writing by 250 B.C. making predictions about Jesus the Messiah 250 years at the very earliest later. And they, and they made these predictions, and as we said, all these predictions, and some of them said, well, Jesus tried to make himself fit these predictions. He had predictions that he fulfilled that he had no control over, humanly speaking, whatsoever. He could not, as a human being, control the fact that he was born in Bethlehem. He could, he had, he could not control the fact he was born of a virgin, he didn't control his method of death. He didn't control the tribe that he came from. All these things that people, well, Jesus tried to manipulate him. It's not possible because they were predicted years ago. And he fulfilled them, plus all the other prophecies about himself that he fulfilled, and hundreds of them in the Old Testament. And all of that shows that from those long ages ago, these men inspired by God made these prophecies which were fulfilled in later governments and in Jesus Christ. And that just shows, again, the supernatural nature of God's book that he's given to us. Someone else has a question. Yes, sir. Uh, Mel, this morning you you kind of went a little fast over the Roman Catholic. I know we were, you went kind of fast over everything because it was so crammed in. But with the Roman Catholics... Uh, the Bible that they have, we have the Apocrypha. You have the additional books of the Bible as to what the Protestant Bible has. Um, I have not read that. Shame on me. Uh, probably need to just to see what it is. But why would that be included in, in their Bible? Uh, it's not in ours. What's the teaching there? And why would you have the, have the differences? Okay, that's an excellent uh, question. I'm sure either of these guys can answer it. Uh, <laughs> there's about, uh, not sure of the number, but it's 11 or 13 extra books in the Catholic Bible. The Catholic Bible is called the New American Bible, not the New American Standard. This is a Protestant Bible. This is the real Bible. The New American Bible. Uh, they have about 13 different books called apocryphal. Uh, that word just means hidden, the hidden books, secret books, and they're sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, and um, they give great uh, historical information, Mark. They fill in the gaps for us. Uh, a lot of it fills in the gaps for us during intertestamental period, especially 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Maccabees is the name of four of the books. They fill in historical information in the intertestamental period. The problem is um, the early churches... Uh, first couple few centuries of the church did not use these books wi widely. They weren't widespread. They weren't written by apostles or prophets. And uh, they weren't recognized as the early church as being part of the canon. That's why in 367 A.D. Um, the uh, church council, council that met to, hey, let's... Uh, Gather the books together that have been more widely used was one of the criteria if it makes the cut for the canon. The ones that are more widely geographically spread around, the ones that were written by an apostle or their associate, like uh, Luke wasn't an apostle, but he was Paul's associate. Or And a third major criteria was uh, it had to um, line up with the doctrine in the rest of the books. So the theology in those books is the main problem. 
Mark. And uh, the reason Roman Catholics want to keep them, one reason is a couple of those books teach things like purgatory, and they want to uh, keep that in their uh, doctrine. So it's um, you talk about pay, playing fast and loose with books of the Bible. The apocryphal, the apocryphal is not inspired scripture. Doesn't even claim it. Those books don't claim it. But they're interesting reads. Bell and the Dragon, Maccabees, good historical stuff. They're interesting reads, but they're not inspired scripture. Their doctrine. The theology is not in line with the theology in the books of the Protestant canon. So that's why we don't uh, buy a Bible with the apocryphal books. Although it ain't going to hurt you to read those books. Barry might can add. Uh, Bob can add. I was was just going to add that in uh, we didn't get to cover it in the notes of our class. Oh, sorry, Jeremy. We did not get to cover it in the notes in our class, but that's one of the reasons that I that or Jeremy included for me. Um, Jeff Spencer's entire notes on you maids and the and the word and the Bible being the word of God um, go on past the section that we finished today with you maids and the and the six reasons uh, six you know examples why we believe the scriptures the word of God Jeff has a section on canonicity at at the end at the end of that section and um, reasons why. The, and tests that we apply to determine the canonicity of those books and why those books were rejected. There is material in there on that. Uh, I used to be, of course, a Roman Catholic when I was a child. Went to the Roman Catholic Church, got baptized and all that, and went to parochial school and all that kind of thing. But a lot of people think that uh, Catholics are just another denomination, but their gospel is not the gospel. Because in Catholicism... It's the mass that saves. It's the church that saves. And even though Catholics will talk about Christ and the resurrection and the Son of God, when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, you have to be a Catholic. You have to attend the mass, or you can never go to heaven. And so uh, and some people are saying, well, you know, we need to bring all the denominations together. But what's lost in the ecumenical movement is the gospel. But basically, it, it, the tradition that has been added since the days of Constantine, makes it into a whole nother cult. And to me, Catholicism is just as dangerous as Mormonism or Jehovah's Witness. Because, and I've met Catholics for the year that think they were saved because they were baptized or because they've had the Mass or they went to church. And um, I think probably the best approach to Roman Catholics is to ask, well, uh, you're interested in spiritual things. Do you know for sure you're going to heaven? And then you can say, well, you know, here's, and you, you can use a Catholic Bible. But use the scriptures, not the notes, of the Catholic Bible to point to them that salvation is by grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone. But to them, it's the church that saves. It's the mass. It's the traditions. And uh, so Roman Catholicism is a a system that will enslave you and control you. And, you know, there there is no salvation by grace. I mean, that's why the Reformers left it. Because they, the, the gospel had been so corrupted by human tradition, all these things, the books that were added and the mass that was added, and wor- the worship of Mary is idolatry. And, you know, how can you pray to Mary? You're praying to Mary, you're saying she's God? So we need to understand why we love Catholics, that that is not, so to speak, the, the, the gospel, or that is not the Christianity of the Bible, but a, a completely false system. A little bit later, I'd like to close with a story on something else about how Ravi Zacharias became a Christian. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. 
Uh, don't the Catholic uh, beliefs uh, trace uh, the Pope back to the to the part where uh, Jesus told Peter, "You are the rock on which I build my church." And don't they also have a book called the Catechism? Okay, which one of you would like to comment on that one? Um, you heard a question. Uh, don't Catholics supposedly trace back to where Jesus says to Peter, "Upon this rock, uh, I will build my church." And then also, what about the Catechism book? And again, the Catechism on. is tradition; it's not the Bible. And it's their teaching that you have to submit to in order to be a Roman Catholic. But the word for the rock, uh, <clears throat> when Jesus was saying, Peter, you're the rock, that's talking about a little stone. The rock is the big stone, right? The different, it's a different word, isn't it, Mel, for, for rock. Uh, <clears throat> but basically, we date Catholicism to the time of Constantine, about 305 uh, A.D., when he supposedly was converted and made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. At that point, uh, they went into the pagan temples and uh, scraped off the names of the uh, uh, Roman gods and put down the saints. You know, and that's where, from that period, from 300 since, that's where all of these pagan ideas at the mass actually goes back to Bob- Babylon. And some of these ideas, the worship of the Virgin Mary goes back to Hislop, wrote a book called The Two Babylons, in which he traced a lot of these ideas of Catholicism and went back to ancient Babylon. So uh, Catholicism really goes back to about the time of Constantine when he made the Bishop of Rome head of the Christian church. The other bishops, you know, worked together, but they never had one head until Constantine said, we need one head for the church and I can control the church if I make the Bishop of Rome the head of the church. And so that's uh, really politics and tradition and paganism that all got mixed in. First czar, I guess, huh? Anyway... Uh, somebody else want to add to that or comment on that? Just that the fact that there there is no um, solid evidence among the church fathers that when Christ said upon this rock that he was referring to Peter, um, aside from the difference in the Greek words, if you'll read the writings of the early church fathers, most of them uh, held the opinion that when Christ said that word, upon this rock, he was referring back to himself. Um, he, he is the rock. Um, we find that in the Gospels. It says Christ is the found, and in the epistles as well, Christ is a sure foundation that no, unless a man builds on that rock, he's the stone that no other man... I'm, I'm badly misquoting Galatians at this point. But there, there is no other foundation that a man can lay. Um, except Jesus Christ and him being the church cornerstone. And many of the early church fathers felt that in that passage, when Jesus said, upon this rock, he was referring back to himself. Any other questions? The reference is in, um, in this is to, to Barry. Um, sorry, I'm just like abusing you. Um, but the references to the... the um, age of the documents that are found, um, the scrolls, etc. Um, what technology are we using to identify the time um, periods that those were you know, copied or written or whatever? That's a very good question, <laughs> and that is one I do not have an answer to. Um, that, there, there are people who specialize in that, in that sort of thing. I don't know the techniques. I know the results. 
Um, but I mean, it's they they can just remembering a few things that, like my Greek professor um, mentioned, like we talked about some of the materials that the that the scripture was actually written on. We know that parchment um, and papyrus is is very early. Like we looked at the John Rylands fragment today. Um, you know, they didn't have paper. You couldn't run run over to the store and pick up. You know a bundle of loose leaf. Papyrus is made out of thin strips of papyrus laid and crossed by each other. And they know that there are certain time periods um, that that was primarily used in and then it switched to the vellum, which is like the skin types and everything like that. I know that's a couple of the ways they can look at it. With, with the advances that we have in technology and putting things under microscopes, they can even date... Um, and like I say, I'm just, this is just off the top of my head remembering from Greek class, but somehow or the other, and I couldn't explain the process, but they can tell by the composition of the ink um, and the materials that, they, that put that sort of thing together. They can date things like that. Um, I, you know, we were talking about Codex Sinaiticus, and my prof was talking about it in Greek class one night. They can put things under certain lights and they can see things um, un- under certain lights that come through, even like that vellum stuff, and see where uh, things previously weren't seen, like a scribe making a note about you know something that this particular line when they were copying it, and these scribal markings because they can infuse it with ultraviolet light and things like that, and things like that become visible. But um, certainly the materials that it was that it was written on. Uh, has something to do with that because, like I said, papyrus is much earlier than the than the vellum type writing material, um, condition of the ink, and other things that they have techniques with microscopes and microscopes and scanning lights. I'm not familiar with the technology. I'm familiar with the results. <laughs> Any other have a thought on that um, dating method? Not really, other than another criteria would be the style of writing, uh, the, the type of material the things are written on, but also the style of writing could tell them a time frame, a general time frame within a couple hundred years. But then uh, there's some more te- technological stuff, but you can just Google, uh, it's called paleography, the study of ancient writings. You, know, you can look up stuff on paleography and also uh, the, the science behind uh, just the whole fuss about all these manuscripts called textual criticism. Yeah. And there's good books out there by good conservative scholars who practice this. Uh, best website I can think of is um, headed up by Dan Wallace out of Dallas Seminary. And his the website is uh, it's the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts. Yeah. It's uh, C... CSNTM. CSNTM.org. It's a good place to start, Holly. Is that Holly, right? It's a good place to start, but. That, that's where I got my picture of the Sinaiticus app, was off of his website, like that. So that would be a good one to, to look at there. Uh, maybe on follow up to that, because, and maybe I'm misunderstanding, but potential implication is. If a Christian accepts dating methods for that in this forum, why not accept scientific dating methods in another forum such as creation? Well, that's kind of what you're alluding to in essence. 
So how would you respond to that then? We accept dating methods in this realm, but not dating methods in that realm. Well, if you talk about carbon-14, carbon-14 is only good for 20, 20 25,000 years, I think it's that. It's no good for millions of years. And carbon-14 dating would tend to indicate that the Earth is not millions of years old. So they say, well, it's no good for 20,000 years anyway, so we use other methods to, to try to show it's billions or millions of years old. But you can use carbon-14 up to something like 20,000 years. Yeah. The hard sciences these days, I'm sorry, the hard sciences these days anyway, it's a big game out there for scientists, guys, that get the uh, scholarships through the universities and uh, institutions that uh, grant them money. It's all a big game anyway. It's just a joke for scientists about as far as trying to date the beginning of the universe. It's really a joke because uh, as uh, Bob just showed you, carbon... 14, radiometric dating, these things, they can't, they don't prove anything because they only go back so far. So you have, there you have it. <laughs> and, and even when they do, um, they have been able to show that radio, uh, especially like radiometric dating methods like that have not been consistent. Um, there were some scientists that did test on Mount St. Helens the year, and the rocks that formed within hours and the rock strata that was that's another one that was that they said would take you know you look at the grand canyon and you see the rock stratas that look like sheets of paper stacked up on each other and it took they oh it took millions of years to form those strata mount st helens did it in about three hours and you can and you can go to st helens and see those rock layers laid down like that um, the radiometric datings that there were some of the scientists, and you know, forgive me for not, I hate to quote when I don't have my source readily because Barry's up there making up, you know, 42.7% of all statistics are made up on the spot, you know, that's that kind of thing like that. But, um, but, the, but the idea is that I did read in this one study, they ran the radiometric dating methods up there, and the range on Mount St. Helens. The rocks formed by Mount St. Helens, which we know exploded in 1980-1981. Those rocks are 30 years old. They, the test ran anywhere in a range from 250,000 years old to up to you know about 1 or 2 billion years old. So the, the, the thing with Christian scientists have always been, even with the radio deck radiometric dating methods, is there are things we don't know. We, you know it's like they say, well... Okay, uranium turns into lead in so many years, and I forget how many years that is. Well, if the Earth is billions of years old, why is there still uranium, and why don't we why do we just don't we just have lead anymore? Um, because you know there there's there's still uranium out there that we're mining and things like that. You you look at things like that, and they don't they don't know how much of the material has been there was there to start with. They don't know if any external forces have have um, you know had any effect. You know, like we would say that the flood had a tremendous effect on rocks and dating forces and things like that. But you know, they're they're not taking into account external forces that could have changed, altered the uh, the the amount of the material from the source to what we're testing today, um, and the, and. Uh, 
I had one other, but it was going to slip my mind. It slipped my mind right now. But there, there, are, there are enough questions about the results of the radiometric dating method and the information that they start with to, to you know, have questions as to are these tests, especially the ones that go back billions and billions of years, are as accurate as they could be. Time for just a couple more questions, please. Somebody else, another question. Yes, sir. I see that hand. I just wanted to, I don't think I mentioned the story we were talking about. Uh, some of, two of the greatest apologists that are alive today are J- Josh McDowell. We talked about how he came to Christ. Let me just take a couple minutes to tell Robbie Zacharias. This is a good book. I don't know if you got this one, Walking from East to West and Back. It's uh, Robbie Zacharias's personal story of how he came to Christ. Uh, he speaks at Harvard and Oxford and Cambridge, and he gets into, uh, he's spoken at inaugurations and so forth, uh, and has a tremendous ministry to intellectuals around the world defending the faith. And uh, he grew up <coughs> in a uh, Hindu Brahmin caste in India. His father was in high offices with uh, Nehru in the top of the government of India. And uh, Growing up, he was a poor student, believe it or not, didn't do well in school, and his father uh, was able to manipulate things and get him into a junior college, and uh, he, uh, he wasn't doing too well, he was skipping class, because all he wanted to do was play cricket. Well, <clears throat> one day, uh, the report card came, and uh, Robbie had been traveling around town looking for cricket games instead of going to college. His father met him at the door and beat him up within an inch of his life. And uh, his mother intervened, and, uh, but his, mad, his dad was mad to bring such a dishonor to the family because his, uh, I think he has a sister who's a doctor and a brother who's a, a scientist, a chemist, and all this, and, and he was just a poor student. Well, a few months later, uh, Robbie got real depressed. I think he was about 17 years old, and uh, he went home and uh, tried to commit suicide with uh, medications, and there was a servant who was not supposed to be in the house. Everybody else was at work, but the servant stayed to take care of something, and Robbie went into the hit the bathroom, took some medications, were very strong, and tried to commit suicide. And, and the servant said, you know, he went in there. What's he doing? He knocked on the door, found him on the floor, took him to the hospital. And uh, they were afraid that there would be permanent brain damage. Well, it's obvious that Robbie has no brain damage. His brain works very well. And, uh, but anyways, uh, just previous to this time, he, he had some Christian friends invited to a Youth for Christ rally. He had heard the gospel and had somewhat in his mind agreed that now yeah, maybe Jesus is it. But later he, he tells us that's not when he got saved. But uh, in that hospital room, these Christian friends came to visit him. And uh, he was in a coma for a while, and one of them left a Bible for him. And there was a verse, and I, I can't get the exact reference in the Gospel of John, where Jesus said, uh, my word will give you life, or something, or something like that. My words will give you life. And uh, his mother was there and, and received the gift of the Bible, and, and, and the Christian friend said, when he wakes up, give him the Bible and tell him this verse. And Ravi finally came out of the, of the coma and uh, heard the verse, and it just struck him that, you mean there is life in Jesus? And that gave him hope. He didn't have any hope. He felt like a worthless, a dishonor to his family, a failure, and all this type of thing. Everybody else in the family is doing well except him. So uh, he said, I, I left that hospital a, a Christian. That was the po- point where he trusted Christ as his Lord and Savior. He came to believe the word of God. And, of course, now uh, he went on to college, became one of the best students. And his brothers and sisters and dads said, what happened to him? He was a flunky. Now he's one of the best students, you know. 
but because he had come to Christ. And uh, God is uh, using Ravi Zacharias in a wonderful way. My point is this. There were some loving Christians who had an input in his life that didn't give up on him, that kept up the contact. And when there was a crisis in Ravi's life, they were there. And so sometimes when you're working with people, it's not your arguments. It's the fact that you care and you're available when they're ready to ask you for the reason of the hope. Going back to that First Peter 3.15. Amen. Well, let's end on that note. I appreciate uh, everyone, their questions, their time today. And um, let's give a, a round of applause for all of our speakers, everybody today. Had a part. If you haven't turned in your surveys, please drop those on your way out. I'm going to ask Pastor Dean Hightower if he would dismiss us in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word of God. Thank you that it is truth. It is truth that sets the soul free. It's Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so we do, we do praise you for the topic of apologetics. Those men who have given their lives. Not that the Bible has to be proven, but that these men are able to verify for us that the Bible is trustworthy. Thank you for these men that's given their time and their study to be here with us today. We ask your blessings upon all. And may the grace of God continue in our lives and add to these things. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.